right? We're looking at um, the spirit of Caleb, or the Caleb spirit, I'm calling it this morning, uh, from Numbers chapter 14, verse 24, where God said, But my servant Caleb, because he had another spirit and have followed me fully, him will I bring into the land whereof he went, and his seed shall possess it. Talks about Caleb having another spirit with him. There's something different about this man, Caleb. And at the beginning of the year, I, I usually am looking for some kind of a theme for the year, some kind of a verse maybe to, to guide me through the year. And I think this is the one I'm going to use to guide me through the, this year. And what intrigued me about this was that what, what God said about Caleb. Now, who was Caleb? Well, he was one of the 12 spies. He was from the tribe of Judah. Uh, Moses was called um, as he led the people out of Egypt, and they came to the brink of the promised land. They were at Kadesh, and he sent out, God told them to send out spies into the land, to spy out the land of Canaan where they were supposed to go. And he was to pick a one spy from each of the tribes of Israel. And these would have been leaders of those tribes. And so Caleb was one of them. He was from the tribe of Judah. Joshua was another one from the tribe of Ephraim. And notice what God says about him. He said about him that, that Caleb was of another spirit. He had, a, he had a unique attitude about him that was different from the others. And what was this this thing that was unique, this spirit that Caleb had, was it a good or a bad one? Well, it was good. God's commending him for it here. And so it was a, a good spirit that Caleb had that God commends. And we see this is something that we should have as well. This, this, this spirit that Caleb had, we should emulate that. We should have that same type of spirit as he had. And, uh, this is the kind of spirit I'm, I want to try to have in this coming year. So let's talk about what this Caleb spirit is. And, and when I say this, we're not talking about the Holy Spirit, but spirit in the sense of more like an attitude than something like that. And so let's try to define this Caleb spirit. First of all, we see that it was different from what the other spies had. So Numbers 14, 24, he says, But my servant Caleb, because he had another spirit with him. It's another spirit. It's a different spirit. But different from the other spies, which it should make him stand out from the other ones. So let's go back and look at the spirit that the other spies had. What was, what was the attitude they had? They go to the promised land. They spy out the land. They see whether, Moses wanted them to see whether the, the, the nations were large or small, were the cities fortified or not, were the, was the land productive, was, it, it, was, it, was, it, was the produce good, was it fruitful, these kind of things. He wanted information on that before they went into the promised land. God had told them to go into the, the land of Canaan and conquer the enemies, that, the people that were in the land. This was, and I, I understand, I you know, when I was a kid, we didn't have to explain this, but in our day, we have to now. Because people look at that and say, that's horrible, that's imperialism. And it's horrible, they're kicking people out of their land, that's, they're, they're stealing the land from them. And they'll bring up all kinds of examples of history. It's not horrible what God tells you to do. 
God told them to go in and to take the land of Canaan because the Canaanites had sinned for years and years and years and years against God. This was God's punishment on the land of Canaan. The Canaanites had 400 years between Moses and Abraham. All those years to repent, and they refused. And God gave them that time. And so when, when the, the people of Israel are going into Canaan to, to take the land, they're not doing it because they're mean. They're not doing it because they're unloving people and they're cruel. They're doing it in obedience to God because God was wanting to punish the criminals. And you got to remember that in our day. So, anyway, so that's that's that. But now they're at the brink of the land, and they're supposed to go in, and so they're supposed to invade this land, and so they need to, to know what they're coming up against. And so they send in the spies. And so here's the report of those spies when they came back. Verse 27, first they say the land is good. And they told him, this is on Numbers 13, verse 27. And they told him and said, We came unto the land whither thou sentest us, and surely it floweth with milk and honey. And this is the fruit of it. So this land is good. It's a land that flows with milk and honey. It's, it, it's, there, there's abundance of animals. There's abundance of, of produce there. They brought back these grapes with this, this huge cluster of grapes that they had to hold between two men. It was so big. It was a prosperous land. But then they said the people were strong. Verse 28, Nevertheless, the people be strong that dwell in the land. So they're not weak nations, they're strong nations. Then they say that the, the, the cities were walled. The cities are walled and very great. The, the cities like fortresses there. Then they said that the nations were too much for them. There are too many of them. It says, moreover, we saw the children of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south, and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the mountains, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and by the coast of Jordan. There's too many nations. And then they said in verse 32 that the land would eat them up. It says, And they brought up an evil report of the land which they had searched under the children of Israel, saying, The land through which we have gone to search it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. There's no way. This, they're, they're, the land may be fruitful, but if we go in there, the land's going to kill us. And then they said that the, the people there were too big. The end of verse 32, And all the people that saw it, that we saw in it are men of a great stature. And there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers. And so we were in their sight. The people are like giants. We're supposed to go in and fight them. And so, to sum it all up, in verse 31, they said, We be not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than so their report was, we can't go in there. They're, we're not able to. There's the spirit that these ten spies spoke with was a fearful spirit. It was a doubtful spirit. It was pessimistic. It was unbelieving. 
and it was unwilling to fight. <coughs> We're not willing to go in. So Caleb's, though, was different than that. Think the opposite of that. That was Caleb's. Another thing you see about the spirit of Caleb is that it involved the willingness to follow God fully. Look back in chapter 14, verse 24. God said, but my servant Caleb, because he had another spirit with him, and hath followed me fully. So the spirit of Caleb that he had was a spirit that would follow God fully. In fact, I was looking up that phrase, and if you look up those words, holy followed, holy followed God, that phrase is used six times in the Old Testament, and is exclusively used of Joshua and Caleb. Which is very interesting. That surprised me. Let me show you some places. In Numbers 32, uh, verse 11. Numbers 32, 11. It says, Surely none of the men that came up out of Egypt from 20 years old and upward shall see the land which I swear unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob, because they have not wholly followed me. Save Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and the, the Akimazite, and Joshua, the son of Nun, for they have wholly followed the Lord. And so this is uh, rehearsing, talking about what had happened back then with the spies, and God speaking about this again, and saying that, no, but the, the, the Joshua and Caleb, they wholly followed the Lord, and the others didn't. Deuteronomy 1.36 tells us that Caleb fully followed the Lord. Joshua 14, verse 8, and verse 9. Verse 8 says that Caleb, God says that Caleb followed the Lord. Verse 9, Moses says that Caleb followed the Lord, fully followed him. And then in Joshua 14, 14, again it says that Caleb fully followed the Lord. This was something that, that he was known for. What does it mean? When God said that he wholly followed the Lord, he had followed me fully or wholly. It is the idea that Caleb was a man who went after God with everything he had. He didn't hold back. Especially in relation to this issue of going in and taking Canaan. And specifically in that. Caleb wholly followed the Lord in that. He was going to go in and he was going to conquer. He was ready to follow God in the Canaan too. He was ready to follow God wherever God wanted to lead. And so the spirit of Caleb involved this, this willingness to follow God wherever God can take him. It also involves a desire to take Canaan. So you go back to Numbers chapter 13. And look at verse 30. So the other spies are, are giving a bad report about the land. And look what Caleb says, verse 30. And Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. Caleb's response was, Let's go right now. Let's take it. Let us go up at once. And possess it. He was emphatic about taking Canaan. 
Uh, the, the phrase there, let us go up at once, literally in Hebrew, is going up, we should go up. The way that they have of expressing something in a, in a emphatic way. And then the phrase there, we are well able to overcome, literally it would be overcoming, we will overcome. These are both emphatic uses of language there. And Caleb said, yes, let's go now, and we will win. He was ready to go. Well, the other spies were very much hesitating. They were afraid to go. He was ready to go. He was ready to go to the fight. Another thing we see about this Caleb spirit, it involved the confidence that God would help them. So in Numbers 13.30, So let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. He says, I know we will win. How, did he, how could he possibly know that? Humanly speaking, there was no way they could have won. How could Caleb have possibly understood that? Was, was Caleb just, did he, did he have a, a um, was he being overly optimistic? There are some guys like that, you know, I think in sports. There are some guys who think they're going to hit every shot. And we know they're not. But in their mind, they're thinking, no, I'm going to hit every shot. Now, that's a bit of an exaggeration. But with Caleb, it wasn't like that. It wasn't this false optimism or anything like that. It was because he knew that God was with them. So you go to Numbers 14, verse 6. And Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, which were of them that searched the land, rent their clothes, and they spake unto all the company of the children of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to search it is an exceeding good land. If the Lord delight in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it us. A land which flows in Jehovah. He says, God will give it to us. The land is good. God will give us the land. So in verse 9 he says, Only rebel ye not against the Lord, neither fear ye the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their, de their defense is departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Fear them not. But don't be afraid of them. God is with us. So don't be afraid of them. The reason why Caleb had this confidence that they were going to win is because God told him they would. Caleb wasn't putting words in God's mouth. Caleb wasn't being presumptuous. God had said they would win. So Caleb knew they would. He was just acting on the word of God. He was confident that God would help them. And this this was part of that spirit that he had that the other spies didn't have. Also, this Caleb's spirit involved the desire to take Hebron. Now, you go, go forward about 45 years, okay, to Joshua chapter 14. So Joshua chapter 14. And, uh, Starting in verse 6. So this is 45 years later. They've gone into the promised land. They're dividing up the land amongst the different tribes. 
Not all the enemies have been conquered yet, but enough of them have been conquered so they're in the land now. And Caleb comes to Joshua. So Caleb is 85 at this point. Way past retirement age. Look what he says in verse, uh, Joshua 14, verse 6. Then the children of Judah came unto Joshua in Gilgal, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Hemazite, said unto him, Thou knowest the thing that the Lord said unto Moses, the man of God, concerning me and thee in Kadesh-Barnea. what God said to us all the years ago, Joshua? Forty years old was I when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh-Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought him word again as it was in my heart. Nevertheless, my brethren that went up with me made the heart of the people melt, but I wholly followed the Lord my God. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land whereupon thy feet have trodden shall be thine inheritance and thy children's forever, because thou hast wholly followed the Lord my God. And now, behold, the Lord hath kept me alive, as he said, these forty and five years. Even since the Lord spake this word unto Moses, while the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness, and now, lo, I am this day fourscore and five years old. I'm eighty-five now. As yet, I am as strong this day as I was on the day that Moses sent me. Be nice if all of us could say that. As my strength was then, even so is my strength now. For war, both to go out and to come in. I can fight now as much as I could back then. Now, therefore, give me this mountain whereof the Lord spake in that day. For thou heardest in that day how the Anakims were there, and that the cities were great and fenced. If so be the Lord will be with me, then I shall be able to drive them out, as the Lord said. He was talking about the city of Hebrew, up in the hills. That city was still at that point inhabited by the children of Anak, who were giant. And Caleb said, this is the land that God promised me. I want that now. I'm going to take it now. At 85 years old, he was still ready to fight. He still had the same spirit. He was still had, had this desire to go and take the land. One more thing we see about this Caleb spirit. It corresponded well with his name. Caleb, the name Caleb means dog. Dog. And it comes from a root, which probably means to attack. So it doesn't mean a nice dog. It doesn't mean a ugly black dog. It means a dog that's ready to, ready to fight. And Caleb had that kind of spirit. Not in the bad sense in which he was ready to, to fight with people in a bad way, but he was ready to fight the battles for the Lord. And he was aggressive to do that. He was like a, like a dog pulling on his leash. Let me in the king. Let me in the Hebrew. I'll take it. So what is this Caleb spirit, if we're going to sum it all up? It's, it's an attitude of pushing forward Looking for the battle that God wants you to play. That's that spirit. 
It's a, it's a spirit of pushing forward. Caleb was looking for the battle and eager to get into it. Let me try to illustrate this for you. I was up. As I was preparing this, I was reminded of, of two missionaries that really, really exemplified this Caleb spirit. And uh, the first one, and these are two pioneer missionaries. And what by a pioneer missionary means somebody who goes into a field that's never been gone into before. But they go in first. And the first one I'm thinking of was, was David Livingston. Um, he was a well known name, especially in the latter part of the 1800s. Um, he was a famous explorer. Uh, but, you know, secular people like to think of him only as an explorer, but he wasn't just an explorer, he was a missionary person. Uh, he grew up in Scotland, and he went from Scotland to Africa. At first he was intending to go to China, but the time when he was wanting to go there, he had the opium wars with England, so that didn't work out, so instead he went to Africa. And while he was in Africa, he met a man by the name of Robert Moffat. Uh, who, be, who became his father-in-law. He married Moffat's daughter. Robert Moffat was a pioneer missionary to Africa. And so Livingston went there and and, and he ultimately um, he, he saw exploration as an important thing in order to pave the way for more missionaries to come in. That was his desire. And he thought as long as there, as long as there aren't roads, as long as there aren't maps, it's going to be harder for missionaries to come behind me. And he found that he had a, quite a, an ability in exploration. So he started devoting himself to trying to reach into the heart of Africa, trying to find a, a, a route through the bottom part of Africa by water, a water route, and things like that. Uh, because he knew that if he could do that, it would be, it'd be easier for more missionaries to come in. Let me give you some of his, uh, by the way, he died in 1873 in Africa while he was trying to find the source of the Nile River. Uh, Livingston was also a doctor. He had theories about malaria that were correct before the scientific improvement. He, he thought it came from mosquitoes. He was, um, he was I, I think, was, was part of finding that quinine would help uh, with the treatment of malaria. Things like that. So God used him in, in, in great ways. Today he's considered an imperialist because he was from Great, great Britain. And um, all the missionaries that went out from Great Britain were not imperial, imperialists. Uh, great Britain may have, have been imperialistic in a lot of ways, but the missionaries were just trying to reach people from the gospel. And so um, let me read for you some of the statements that that Livingston said that captured this Caleb spirit very well. First one is, is in a letter written to a man named Dr. Tidman, who was the secretary of the London Missionary Society that Livingston had gone out with. This was in June 24, 1843, uh, from South Africa. And here's what Livingston said. He said, if you could realize this fact as fully as those on the spot can, you would be able to enter into the feelings of irrepressible delight with which I hail the decision of the directors that we go forward to the dark interior. May the Lord enable me to consecrate my whole being to the glorious work. 
He was in South Africa at the time, and the directors of the mission had were making some plans to try to infiltrate into the interior. And Livingston said he was it filled him with feelings of irrepressible delight at the thought of going forward. In a letter to Dr. Tidman again, um, about a few months later, he said this. He said, though I should be delighted to consider this place the center of my sphere of labor, the South Africa where he was, I shall try to hold myself in readiness to go anywhere, provided it be forward. What a thought. So I'll go anywhere it wants forward. I'll go backwards. Later, Livingston was writing about um, determining God's will and writing a letter to someone and dealing with that. And here was his perspective on it. He said, I think you are not quite clear upon the indications of providence, my dear brother. I don't think we ought to wait for them. Our duty is to go forward and look for the indications. In general, I have observed that people who have sat long waiting have sat long enough before they saw any indication of God. What he was saying is, I think a lot of people sit and wait far too long against their duty to go forward. And if they would just step out and go forward, God would make it clear. This is in a letter to um, Henry Drummond in 1848. Livingston said this, he said, I often in reading some of the periodicals which reach us, afar from the din of war and strife of tongues, Exalt in the glorious prospects which God is working out for our world in this 19th century. He was seeing technology and how it could be used and stuff. But never yet has a wish crossed my mind to return homewards. All my desires tend forward to the north. Why we have a world before us here, we have no missionaries beyond this. All is dark. As well, Britain's getting all their technology back home. Since I've got a desire to go back there, I want to go forward. North of Africa, where it was dark. Then he wrote a letter to his brother. This was in 1873. This was about a month before he died. He said, Nothing earthly will make me give up my work in despair. I encourage myself in the Lord my God and go forward. Livingston was always going forward, seeking to get in the battle for the Second missionary, as an example, was somebody who was affected by Livingston, and her name was Mary Schlesser. Uh, she was grew up in Scotland as well, actually grew up in Zenith's hometown of Dundee, and um, back in the 1800s. Uh, she had a difficult home life. Her father was a drunk. So he would go. He was nice when he wasn't drunk. He was mean when he was drunk. And uh, he would he would work and bring home when he got his pay. Oftentimes he didn't bring it home, and so the rest of his family had to try to figure out a way to put food on the table. Uh, it was a very hard life. But at the age of eleven, she 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 had to go to work in a factory where she would weave cotton. The linen. Um, she read about 
about Livingston. She had gotten saved at around 12, 13, something like that. And she read about Livingston. Her, her mom had a real heart for missions. And, and she was always reading about, about this and reading about a place in Africa. Today it would be Nigeria, called Calabar. And she was always reading about that. And, and Mary Slessor read about Livingston and was moved to become a missionary when she heard about his death. Now, his death was a was made the news, it was big news in the days, and he was opening up the company of Africa. Um, people, the, his, some of the natives after he died, uh, took his body something like 90 miles or something. It was a long journey to, so he could be sent back to Britain. And um, except for one thing, they cut out his heart and buried it in Africa. They can say his heart was in Africa. Uh, he's buried at Westminster. The rest of his remains, I think, are buried at Westminster Abbey now. But um, so when she heard about this, this was big news. And the thought was, what's going to happen to Africa? And so she was moved at that time to, to become a missionary herself. And so she went from Scotland uh, to Calabar, Nigeria. And she helped open up the interior of Nigeria. Now, she was an incredible story. It was kind of tell it all. I wish I knew it all. Um, she would go into places where nobody else went. This, this little woman. Single woman would go to these places that were that were totally animals. And let me, let me Consider some statements about her. First of all, this is the one describing her mission, her pioneer missionary spirit um, in one of her biographies. It says, she was essentially a pioneer. Her thoughts were forever going forward, looking past the limitations and hopes of others, into the fields beyond, teeming with populations of yet unreached. She was of the order of spirits to which Dr. Livingston belonged. Like him, she said, I am ready to go anywhere. Provided it be forward. And that was the direction of her life. And describing her desire to move further inland when she had gotten into Africa, she said this it's a, about her. Thus relieved of the of Itu, that was one of the cities she was in, she established herself at Iktobar. But she was again eager to press forwards and wished to plant a station some 15 miles further on. It was a pace faster than the church could go. It had neither the workers nor the means to cope with all the opportunities she was creating. It is a striking picture, this, of the restless little woman ever forging her way into the wilderness and dragging a great church behind her. What a mistake. Then uh, in describing a disagreement that she had with her mission board, she felt her mission board was moving a little too slow. She said this, She was under official ruling to return to Accra in April 1906, and she was now reminded of the fact she was in a great distress and inclined to be mutinous. Is what she said. There is an impelling power behind me, and I dare not look backward. Even if it costs me my connection with the church of my heart's love, I feel I must go forward. So they don't want to go along with me. I'm going to go in. And then describing her desire to stir up the hearts of God's people, 
She said, it says about her, she knew, however, that the presentation of startling facts and figures alone would never rouse it to action. She would make her back to England and to Scotland to speak in the churches and then go back to Africa. So these might touch the conscience for a moment, but the only thing that would awaken interest and keep it active and militant would be a revival of love for Christ in the hearts of people. And it was for this she prayed and agonized most of all. For with it would come a more sympathetic imagination, a warmer faith, greater courage to go forward, and to do the seemingly impossible and foolish thing. <coughs> and then finally, we read about her, her kind of the motto of her life, evidently something she was always saying. Onward, I dare not look back. So this as she was called, restless little woman, Mary Slessor, was always looking to push forward. Always looking to get into battle. Always looking to, to go to the places the other people wouldn't go. And she did. And opened up that part of Africa. I'll give you another illustration. During the Civil War, there were two generals I'll talk about. The first one was General McClellan. George, George, and um, he was the great general of the Union Army. He was, people called him the Little Napoleon because he was a, also not a Republican, and he also was very brilliant in battle strategy and things like that. The problem was he, he would never go to battle. He, he was always waiting for the conditions to be perfect. He didn't want to lose any men. And so he was hesitant to ever fight. Finally, Lincoln got rid of him. He said, we're not going to win the war this way. And after some other generals, he finally got General Grant. And General Grant had his problems. But one of those problems wasn't that he was hesitant to fight. General Grant was a fighter. And he was looking for the battle, whereas McClellan was hesitant. Grant was looking for it. And Grant knew that in order to win a battle, you're going to lose men. And he would rather lose the men and get it over with. And he also understood that you're never going to get a perfect scenario. So you better just go and do it. And Lincoln said about Grant that he liked Grant because Grant fights. That's kind of what you want in a soldier. The ten spies were the ones who were hesitant to get into battle. Caleb was the one who was looking for it. Let's try to apply this now to our own life. What would, what would a killed spirit look like in our lives? doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to go to a vision thing. It also doesn't necessarily mean that you're not. I think one of the things we see today is a lot of people thinking that's for, for others, not for me. And that may be true. You don't want to go unless you're called of God. But you don't also want to assume that you're not called of God. Right? Maybe God's calling somebody here and I'm just to be a Mary Slessor. Or to a man to be a Dick Livingston. 
in our lives, it's, it, it, it's the idea of always seeking to push forward for the Lord, looking for the battle that God has called us to be in. Second Timothy. Look at Second Timothy. It's, it's Paul's writing to Timothy before he dies. And Timothy was, was becoming hesitant and fearful because he was going through some hard stuff. And Paul was writing from prison, and he basically writes Tim, 2 Timothy to tell Timothy, Timothy, get in the battle. Don't hold back. 2 Timothy 1.8, he says this, Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but be thou a partaker of the afflictions of the gospel, according to the power of God. That's Paul's way of saying, get in the battle, Timothy. Be a partaker of the afflictions. Then in chapter 2, verse 3, he said, Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. This is given to suffer. But get in the battle. Endure the hardness. Be willing to do that as a good soldier. Because the reality is, as believers, God has called us into spiritual battle. Every one of us. We don't live in this world unopposed. We live in a world in which, in which there are enemies of the gospel, there are spiritual enemies, there is Satan himself who is actively opposing everything God does. And God has called us to be his witnesses here, which means battle. Spirit, I'm not talking about going, I'm not, I'm not a Muslim, I'm not talking about going out and killing people, okay? We're talking about spiritual death. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. But you think about this. If God has called us to be spiritual soldiers, soldiers don't live for comfort. They live for purpose. We're not here in this world to be as comfortable as we can be. Sounds like crazy work, aren't they? That's what so many people, the object and goal of their life is to be as comfortable as it possibly be. And that's where it is. And that life can come up with We're not called to be in this world to be as comfortable as we could possibly be, but we're called to be here for a purpose. Soldiers don't just fight for the sake of fighting, but they say they fight for a purpose. There's a reason for it. And that reason for us is the gospel of Christ. Soldiers don't just live for ease, but they live for action. We're not called to look for the easiest life possible. We're not called to go on the path of least resistance. We're called to, to action, to serve God where he wants us to serve. Soldiers don't live cautiously, but are willing to risk. We shouldn't be afraid to ever attempt something for God because it might be difficult. Soldiers don't live in, in survival mode. They live in attack mode, which is 
We're not called just to, to get through life as best as we can, just to manage. We're called to overcome. Soldiers aren't only on the defensive, but they're also on the offensive. It's not just a matter of defending. We're not called to stay safely in the fort. We're called to go out and attack. I remember uh, Ross, my mentor, used to not like the song. It's in our handbook, Hold the Fort. Hold the Fort, Brian Cunning. He didn't like that song. Because he said, that's not what we're supposed to do. We're not supposed to stay in the fort. We're supposed to go out and attack. Matthew 16, 18. Jesus said, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And when he said that, he wasn't talking about the church being in the fortress and, and hunkering down. What does it mean the gates of hell will not prevail against it? It doesn't mean that, that, that Satan's trying to attack them with, with gates. That'd be foolish, right? It means that the church is attacking the gates of hell and trying to storm it. And those gates won't prevail against it. It was the uh, naval captain in the Revolutionary War, John Paul Jones, basically the starting of the American Navy. And he made the statement. He said, I, I wish to have no connection with any ship that does not sail fast, for I intend to go in harm's way. So I'm going to find it. I'm not, not going to wait for the end. I'm going to find it. I'm going to this is that Caleb spirit, that's that, that desire to push forward into the battle of God. It, it's not to just wait and see what will come to us. It's, you know, we're going to go up and get into the next battle for the Lord. And this is the spirit that we need to have in our lives. As, as individual believers, that means that I need to determine where is the battle that God wants to give. How does he want to use me? Where can I best serve God? I'm going to serve Him. And I'm not going to wait for that service to come to me. I'm going to go and play it. For our church, it means that we need to not just be satisfied, but we made it through another year. That's not good. We need to push forward with the gospel in our neighborhood throughout the world. We're not just going to wait and see what happens to our church. We're going to go out and do something for God. That's that cable spirit. Let me ask you this. Does your spirit resemble the ten spies or cable? Which one does it resemble the most? As Christians, we should have one direction in our life, and that's forward. As Mary Slessor said, we dare not look back. Let's close the prayer. Father, we thank you uh, for this reminder from your word, from the life of Caleb, 
You see the spirit that he had, he was of another spirit. And this is the spirit that we're supposed to have. May we be eager to get in battle for you, Lord. And not just wait to see what comes our way, but to not to be on the defense, but on the offense. Not to wait to see how the devil's going to attack us and try to defend with him. Instead, to attack him. And Lord, we know we can do this best by, by taking the gospel of the world. Father, I pray that you fill us with this kind of spirit to heal the of Christ. Inspire us with it, Lord. May this be our theme this year, Lord, as we seek what we're going to do in this coming year. May it be seeking to see what battle we can get in and win for you. So we ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's uh, turn to number 414 in your new book. It's saying as we 414. <laughs> Opportunity to be able to fellowship together 
I pray, Lord, that you bless the students who have prepared for us, Lord, and thank you for providing for us as you always do. And we just ask these things now in Jesus' name. Thank you.